Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Naturalist Capitalist. I am obviously your host, Reed Coverdale. I went to a Defend the Guard rally today, the 21st anniversary of the September 11th attacks in 2001. And I gave a 10-minute speech about how, you know, we see the hashtag never forget, but we need another hashtag, like never hashtag never learn. We never learn anything. You know, uh, I, I actually read Osama bin Laden's 1998 fatwa out loud. I had it pulled up on my phone, read it out loud. And he made three points. Uh, one of them was for sanctions and support for Israel. And the other one was just support for Israel and its aggression of its neighboring states. And then the third reason was for occupying the Arabian Peninsula and surrounding uh, Muslim territories. And I mean, if those are the things that we should be changing, we're certainly not doing well. You know, we still sanctions. We still sanction enemies of Israel all over the place. We back Israel on every single thing they do. And we are occupying more of their land than when Osama bin Laden wrote this back in 1998. But anyway, um, tonight we're going to be talking about 9-11 and about the anomalies that took place on that night. And during my speech, I was very tempted to actually connect some of my knowledge of 9-11 and the attacks and uh you know talking about israel or saudi arabia's involvement but i didn't even want to do it because i didn't want to um you know i, I didn't want to take anything away from the defend the guard movement i didn't want to uh, associate it with the 9-11 truth in any way because the whole subject has just become so ruined by mm. sensationalizing everything so I didn't even tie it in, even though it was tempting. Um, and of course, I've got one of the best on 9-11 uh, out of the researchers we have. We've got Adam Fitzgerald on the other end to talk about it tonight. How are you doing, Adam? Hey, thanks for having me, Reed. Yeah, it was great. Um, wow, I didn't know you read the FAPO. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I uh, I changed a couple words because I didn't want to be recorded. Um, <laughs> you know, there's... <laughs> I mean, let's, yeah, even though I understand some of Osama bin Laden's anger, right. like there's definitely some anti-Semitic rhetoric in his uh, fatwa. So I kind of changed some words here and there. But I read um, I read th I, the, the statement was very obvious that he was making. Um, but yeah, um, you were at Ground Zero today. Yeah. Uh, I know you've been a few times on 9-11. What was your takeaway from being there today? What? Um, what type of people did you run into there? And what are your thoughts on the truth movement after being there today? Well, uh, I'll tell you what, we went, I went very early because I thought maybe we could get to the ceremony. I went with a, a, a childhood friend named Mike Garofalo. He's a 9-11 uh, researcher in his own right. And um, we went down there very early because we thought maybe we'd get to the ceremony. And uh, we just found out that it was not open to the public actually so the they have a lot of blocks of cordon off now vice president kamala harris was actually there and i think another dignitary was there too um i forgot who that was but um we couldn't get anywhere near uh like the freedom tower and uh the museum because they're closed to the public that day and so we waited around and all of a sudden you know we saw some of the more uh, popular street activists who are active online. And um, there was about maybe, I'd say, 10 to 15 of them, Reed. 
Um, and they had a huge banner. I, I, the name of the street they were on is Vesey Street. And everybody's not familiar with downtown Manhattan. Vesey and Broadway is um, a very popular area. It's two blocks uh, north of where the World Trade Center is. It's ground, ground zero. And it's about three blocks from the Freedom Tower. And they were on a corner and they had a bullhorn. They had signs all over the place uh, for a block long. Um, and so they were making some noise. I mean, uh, one of the activists there, I've known him for a couple of years online. His name is Gene Laratonda. And um, he was screaming out his lungs. He didn't have a, a speaker or a bullhorn or anything. And um, later on, they got a speaker. And I said, I told him, I remember telling him, I said, you know, you're not going to have a voice by one or two o'clock. Because uh, he's like screaming. And meanwhile, across the street, all these cops and Secret Service are watching him. Like they're watching, you know, looking at him. And, um, you know, he's yelling about how many people died on 9-11 because they killed your brothers and sisters. The guy, i tell you one thing, and I know I disagree with him on a lot of times, but that guy is an amazing activist because his passion is there. And he comes down. He lives in Pittsburgh. And he comes down on his own dime. He brings all his signs and stuff. And I'm like, you know, that's for me, that's respectful, even though I'm, I'm totally um, opposite of, like, a lot of his points and stuff. And we get heated sometimes. But, you know, I even shook his hand and hugged him. And, you know, I said, good luck, you know, stuff like that. But um, interesting times. Um, but there was a lot. I saw a lot more. Um, uh, what's it called? Um, Jesus Christ for Latter-day Saints people. There was at least 100 of them all in different spots downtown. And all the signs that they had was like, uh, do you believe in suffering? And I'm like, this is not the day to do that, friend. I mean, God, you couldn't have picked a worse day to use that as like a slogan um, and like people going to hell and they're screaming like, wow, this is nuts. Mm -hmm. um, if you've never been down there, it's like, yeah, it's like a clash of, uh, you know, these uh, draconian worldviews, monotheisms that are uh, always at, at odds with one another. It's, it's strange, very strange feeling. Overall, it was a good, it was a good experience. Uh, it always something else. And if you ever go down to ground zero, Go down to the Freedom Tower. It's a, it's a, a huge building. Um, and also where the waterfalls are. That's where the World Trade Center Towers were. They're now waterfalls. And it's majestic. Yeah. You know, it's beautiful over there. Yeah. But very serene as well at the same time. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get right to it. I want to talk about uh, some of the anomalies surrounding 9-11 and the things mm -hmm. that are usually brushed over. So I don't even want to get into the kook stuff the no planes whatever i just want to talk about like what actually happened so um i know you're known as the rain man of saudi arabia so let's uh let's start out with some of the saudi arabian stuff so um first of all it's important to point out that two hijackers who were on flight 77 khalid al madar and nawaf al hazmi they were being monitored by the nsa and the cia uh for a long time and one of the one of the red flags that took place while they were being monitored was uh, they had money wired to them by organizations that were affiliated with Saudi royalty. Um, and this was recorded. I think the CIA was it the CIA or the NSA or both that recorded that uh, transaction. Uh, well, CIA. CIA. OK. Yeah. Um, but uh, they were following these guys around a lot and they got these, uh, you know, this money. Don't uh, not uh, they got this money wired to them from the Saudis, 
and they knew about this right up until the September 11th attacks. But I was wondering if you wanted to expand a little bit more on Nawaf al-Hazmi and Khalid al-Madar, mm. the Flight 77 attack on the Pentagon and how the Saudis financed them. Yes, the biggest key, uh, one of the most uh, illuminating key periods of 9-11, including pre-9-11. Um, Khalid al-Madar and Nawaf al-Hazmi had long-standing relations with al-Qaeda. They're the out of the 9-11 hijackers, they had the most experience. Um, it's alleged that they served in Chechnya. It's also uh, alleged that they were part of, at some way, indirectly with the uh, bombings of the um, East Africa uh, embassy bombings in Kenya and Tanzania. And it's also alleged that they were also indirectly involved with the, or directly involved with the bombing of the USS Cole in 2000. So it wasn't some mystery uh, that the intelligence community, especially foreign and uh, domestic and foreign Saudis knew them well um, that these guys were basically just coming out of nowhere but everyone knew who they were in the uh, CIA and the Saudis as well and even the NSA um, Khalid al-Midar um, and I think I had to bring this up because this is central to 9-11 Khalid al-Midar is actually married to a woman named Hoda al-Hada and you're probably asking, well, who's that? Well, she's the daughter of a man who lives in, in a house in Yemen, Sana, Yemen, that's the capital. And his name is Ahmed al-Hada. And you're probably asking, well, who's that? Well, he owns a house that would later be called the Al-Qaeda Communications Hub. And this house basically became the worldwide connections hub for Al-Qaeda communications. And how the intelligence community learned about this was way back in the early 90s, the NSA were monitoring bin Laden, Osama bin Laden's satellite phones. These were called Immersat satellite phones. One was actually bought in Long Island, New York, uh, I think for a price of like $12,000 at the time. Satellite phones were very expensive. They're very rare at the time. And so the FBI, who was monitoring some guy opposite of bin Laden and al-Qaeda because he had links to Hamas. So they asked the NSA to, hey, listen, could you basically track that phone and track the phone calls? Well, the NSA got back to the FBI and said, yes, we can, because it's a decrypted phone. It's not encrypted where they can't listen. So they were listening to the phone calls. And what they found out was that this phone is actually being used in the United States. And it was shipped to Tora Bora, Afghanistan later, and also shipped to the Sudan, where bin Laden actually was living in. And so they tracked this phone and they were listening to the phone calls over the years. And in 1996, when bin Laden relocated to Afghanistan, they found out that one number kept calling back and he kept calling it. And they were wondering, wow, this is a really popular number. Let's track where this number is. And they found out that this house was belonging to Ahmed al-Hada. So they red flagged this number. Now they had two live operations. One was the satellite phone that bin Laden was using from 1992 until he stopped in 1998 and the house in Yemen. So they were monitoring that house from 1996 to 2001. So one operation was six years, one operation was five years. And you could just imagine what these people are talking about on the phone. You had Osama bin Laden, you had Mohammed Atef, who's the Al-Qaeda uh, military commander, Dr. Ayman al-Swahiri, who's the second in command of Al-Qaeda, of Al and God knows who else, yeah. all over the world. So it's no, it's like the intelligence committee will later say, oh, we just didn't have enough intelligence. They were over and abundant. Later on, 
former senior executive of the NSA, Thomas Drake, would later say that the NSA had so much metadata, more metadata than any agency in the world, foreign or domestic, that they probably could have stopped 9-11 alone. So Khalid al-Midar basically was living in this Yemen house. And one day the NSA heard about this phone call that there was going to be a high-level meeting in Malaysia, a terrorist summit meeting. And Khalid al-Midar was invited along with Nawab Hazmi to go to this meeting. The, the NSA told the CIA about this because they don't do human intelligence. And so the CIA agreed to take pictures and send it to the NSA. So when Khalid al-Midar and Nawab Hazmi went to this meeting, at this meeting were all the bigwigs of terrorism around the world from groups like Abu Sayyaf and Jamia Islamiyah, people like Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, um, Mohammed uh, Fahad Al-Kuso, Taufik Benatash, uh, Ridwan Isamuddin, who goes by Hambali, um, Zacharias Moussaoui was alleged to be there, and Salim uh, Al-Hazmi, who's the brother of Nawab Al-Hazmi. A lot of people are at this meeting. And, this, and the Malaysian authorities are taking pictures, and they send it to the CIA. Everybody coming and going for three days. But the CIA never shares the pictures with the NSA. And so they keep it and hoard the information. What they found out later, now there's one story, that they both stop at a hotel after the meeting. And when they leave the hotel, the CIA breaks in and takes pictures of their passports. But to their shock, on the passports are U.S. visas. So they're coming to the United States. They share this information with a bin Laden issue station unit, codenamed Alex Station, which is a virtual station for all domestic intelligence agencies like the FBI, NSA, CIA, DIA, all intelligence agencies are working in some way or another, supposedly sharing information. Later on, we find out they're not. Anyway, the cable comes in. These two guys, known Al-Qaeda operatives, coming to the United States. The CIA sits on the information. Later on, an FBI uh, agent tasked to the Alex station named Doug Miller, he reads the cable, and to his horror, he reads it and runs to his desk and writes a draft cable. However, he needs permission for the C from the CIA to send this information because it's not FBI information. Right. So it goes to the deputy director of Alex Station, Tom Wilshire, and he reads the cable and gives it to his uh, analyst, Michelle Ann Casey. And she reads it and puts on the sign, uh, puts on the, the, the cable, please hold off Pearl Wilshire. The cable's never sent. Mark Rossini, who's uh, another FBI agent, who's uh, uh, so uh, uh, his boss is John O'Neill of New York Counterterrorism, he goes to Michelle and Casey and complains, hey, why is Doug Miller's cable not being sent? And she tells them the following. We think the next attack is in Malaysia, so it's not an FBI matter. We'll let the FBI know. And he yells at her saying, they're coming to the United States. It is a matter. And she says, no, they're not. They come to the United States, January 15th, 2000. And while they're here, the Saudis, out of nowhere, start funding them. People like Omar al-Bayoumi, Osama Basnan, Fahad al-Thumeri, who's an imam at the King Fahd Mosque. Meanwhile, the FBI, the State Department, no idea they're in the country. And they're, and they're here in the country itself. For 16 months, the CIA... The NSA never told the FBI, never told the leading principals meetings at the White House. Nobody knew nothing until August of 2001, late August 2001, when Richard Blee, who is the uh, the chief of Alex Station, 
comes in and holds an emergency meeting with uh, Condoleezza Rice, the National Security Advisor with Bush, and says, uh, we got to tell you something. There's two Al-Qaeda operatives living inside the United States and tells them their names, but doesn't tell them they had U.S. visas. And Richard Clark, who's the head of the National uh, the, the National Counterterrorism uh, Court uh, Security Council, he's like, well, how long did you know this for? And so they lied to him and said, well, we don't know how, how long this information has been out. But they knew exactly when it was been out. Meanwhile, the FBI sends like a rookie agent outside to try and find a needle in a haystack of Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi. Meanwhile, the NSA is still monitoring uh, Nawaf al-Hazmi's cell phone. He make, he's making calls inside the United States. Doesn't tell nobody. The CIA knows exactly where they are. It doesn't tell nobody. The Saudis, too, they know. There's some operatives here. They know where they are. So they go on to hijack American Airlines Flight 77, which crashed into the Pentagon. Now, for those who basically say, well, you know, we don't know if a plane hit the Pentagon or we think it's a drone or whatnot. Right. What I just told you regarding malfeasance, maybe even complicity by foreign intelligence, all of that, what I just told you, doesn't exist. Right. Yeah, so specifically with the funding that they received from the Saudis, who sent that? How are they connected to the Saudi government? And what was that money used for? Well, the money was used for, well, uh, uh, let me back up a little bit. Omar al-Bayoumi was a longtime U.S. resident, and he basically had uh, no-show jobs at Dawa Dawa or Dawa Avco uh, Company. And basically, um, this information was actually redacted by the FBI, and it was that's under orders of the Bush White House to protect Saudi Arabia from having any links with um, with 9/11 itself. Um, Osama Basnan is a radical militant, unlike Al Bayoumi. Al Bayoumi was considered a spy. Later on, I didn't say this before either. Uh, Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hazmi, while they were living in an apartment that was given, with, which was rented by Omar al-Bayoumi for two months, and then they started paying rent. Um, basically, this money was coming from two sources. One, from Omar al-Bayoumi's no-show Saudi government job, and two, um, a bank account that was linked to uh, the former U.S.-Saudi ambassador Bandar bin Sultan, also known as Bandar Bush, because he has a close relationship with the Bush uh, family going back to senior. Um, and he has a, an account at Riggs Bank. And his wife, Haifa bin Faisal, was taking out money from his husband's account and sending it to another woman named Mawida Dwijak, who basically was the wife of Osama Basnan. And she was giving it to her husband, Osama Basnan, who was giving that money to Omar al-Bayoumi, who was giving that money to Khalid al-Badar yeah. and Wafa Azmi. Now, later on, when the 9-11 Commission basically interviewed Omar al-Bayoumi and Osama Basnan, they basically said the following, that that money was going for surgery and hair implants for the wife for the last, uh, I think, like 12, 14 months. And it was coming in increments every month, like three to $5,000. Anything over $5,000 is investigated by the IRS, um, any deposit anyway. So... They basically were playing it safe by sending in these increments of, of monthly uh, financial uh, deposits. But basically, they lied because, you know, the uh, 
the surgeries or the implants basically didn't cost as much and um, it didn't last as long as they said it is. Now, they, they don't have to prove where the money was being sent because nobody's charging them with any crimes. Um, even though after 9-11, Omar Albiumi was actually detained by uh, British authorities and was held in Scotland Yard and he was investigated and cleared of any wrongdoing and was uh, relocated back to uh, Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. Later on, a, the reports that came out through the FBI, Pentbomb report, and later uh, Operation Encore, would later state that Bin Laden's, I mean, um, Omar Albayumi's employer was redacted. And just last year, um, the Biden administration did something good. Well, you know, take that with a grain of salt, did something yeah. good. And finally unredacted the, um, the company name. And the company name actually was um, Saudi Arabian Air uh, National Trans Airlines or something like that. And what happened was it also happened to basically um, uh, unredact the name of the person who hired him. And um, basically, I want to say it was um, uh, Saeed Rash oh, no, Rashid, uh, Hamid al-Rashid is the person who hired him. Now, he has a son named Saud al-Rashid. And you're probably saying, why does this matter? Well, when the FBI went to investigate the Rashids, Saud Rashid was on a, a CD-ROM, uh, his passport on the same CD-ROM with the passports of Abdul Aziz Alamari, Marwan al-Shehi, and I think of somebody, another hijacker. So there's a link right there between Omar al-Biyumi's employer, his employer, and the 9-11 hijackers. Because for years, Omar al-Biyumi told investigators he never knew Khalid Amidar, he never knew Nawaf al-Hazmi, he even denied knowing Osama Basnan uh, directly, and he did. And all of this was untrue. So the 28 pages that were released a couple of years ago, um, what information did that reveal that people were looking for? And then the report that you were just referencing from, I don't know, six months ago or so, whenever it was that the Biden administration made more transparent, what were the findings in both of those documents? Well, let's start with the former. The 28 pages were some of the um, pages that was redacted by the Joint House Intelligence Committee, uh, which is the um, the Joint House Inquiry, uh, which was the second uh, congressional inquiry. The first one everyone knows is 9-11 Commission. The right. Joint House Inquiry was, in, it was uh, a joint inquiry of uh, members of the House and Senate that basically were investigating or... Um, they were investigating the domestic agencies of the United States, the FBI, the CIA, and the NSA. And they found through these pages that um, through their investigation that the Saudi government actually had agents inside the country that were getting Saudi uh, financing from the kingdom itself and kingdom-affiliated organizations. Um, what happened was when the, um, the pages were classified, uh, the co-chair, Bob Graham, had pressed the um, the Senate Select Committee to unredact them and basically release the material to the public in which the State Department under the Bush administration said no dice because they were still protecting their interests in Saudi Arabia. And that just goes to show you who, where their allegiances lie, right? So after many years of haggling within the, the courts, in 2015, the government released a 9-11 document which was compiled by, um, um, 
I think like uh, uh, Lauren um, Lesserman. I think I'm getting a name wrong, but I think the last name is right. And it was known as Document 17, um, which was an overview uh, of in, uh, individuals of interest in Saudi Arabia that the investigators were pursuing uh, potential links with the Saudi government. And they found out there was a couple of names, such as Fahad al-Tumari, as I said before, Omar al-Bayoumi, Osama Basnan, um, Mo Modar Abdullah. And these are people that have committed uh, were familiar with Khalid Al-Midar and Nawaf Hazmi that were living in San Diego and Los Angeles because they had jobs there and they were working in these gas stations. One of them was Sam Mustafa, um, who later uh, Nelson Martins is basically writing a large article with Darren Harvey about. And I think that article is going to be great because not many people know about it. Um, the House Democratic leader, Nancy Pelosi, basically issued a statement for the release, full release of the pages. And what happened was in 2016, under the Obama administration, he let out uh, portions of the document, which were later called the 28 pages. But, you know, the 28 pages isn't fully redacted. We're still protecting members of the Saudi Arabian government. And one FBI agent I managed to interview, Ken Williams, who wrote the Phoenix memo, basically was told by the FBI. Now, he's retired. The FBI basically told him, do not help the victim's families against the civil suit with Saudi Arabia. Well, he went anyway, you know, and good for him, you know, bless his heart. But um, that just goes to show you, even to this day, and that was last year, even to this day, we still don't have unredacted uh, files regarding Operation Encore or the 28 pages, and we still don't have the full story regarding who is being protected um, from the State Department to the Saudi government because the Saudi government continues to deny that they had any links with any of the hijackers, even in full light of the latest revelations under Operation Encore that was revealed last year. And to me, that's the biggest smoking gun of all, because now we have a member of the federal Saudi government and a link to the hijackers regarding financial transactions. Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, there, there's, like you said, at the very least, there was a uh, complete lack of competence in letting America know or the CIA letting the FBI know, but it seems that there was malfeasance and there was assistance given. So, uh, and if they're still trying to protect people, what's that all about? So that's something we definitely should be allowed to, you know, see uncovered and get to the bottom of. Um, I want to switch over to uh, alleged Israeli involvement now. Um, let's start out with flight 93. So uh, you've done a whole video, uh, probably more than one video, but one video that I've seen about Ziad al-Jara and about his connections to um, Israeli intelligence. But before we get into his connections, why don't we just talk about, um, let's talk about the anomalies with Flight 93. He's supposedly on the airplane piloting it, but his voice is never picked up on the black box. Hmm. None of the other hijackers ever shout out his name. The six phone calls from the plane all say that there are three hijackers with dark skin and he's a light skinned dude. So let's just dive into that a little bit. What's really funky about Flight 90, the, fl the official Flight 93 story when it's compared with the witness accounts of what happened and the black box and everything that was recovered? Sure. The official account by, this, by the FBI and the State Department is that 
Flight 93, which was taking, uh, which was coming out of Newark and landing in um, San Francisco, was hijacked by four men, with Ziadjar as the alleged pilot, Saeed, uh, Saeed al-Ghamdi, uh, Ahmed al-Nami, and Ahmed al-Hasnawi as uh, muscle hijackers. But later on, we find out some interesting details that seem to go against the narrative itself. Now, you mentioned the phone calls. Yes, there was a lot more phone calls on this plane than any other plane. It was a whole bunch of calls. I think approximately close to like 30 phone calls. But there were six cell phone calls in particular. And I hate when I hear like truthers, some truthers anyway, basically say uh, the phone calls are faked. Because if they actually listen to some of them, they actually go against the government's narrative and the federal FBI narrative about hijackers. And let me tell you why. Um, you have six phone calls, uh, two by flight attendants, four by passengers that basically say the, the plane was being hijacked by three men. And three of those phone calls basically say that those three men were very dark skinned males. And I, I implore everybody who's watching this to Google Ziad Jara, what he looks like. He's very light skinned. He was born in Becca Valley, Lebanon. And basically, um, real quick down about him. He was born in a very uh, affluent family that has long-standing ties in the neighborhood of Becca Valley. He went to a Christian school, a very prominent Christian school in Lebanon. He was brought up with no religious training whatsoever. He wasn't a Muslim. And basically in 1996, he goes with his uh, cousin, Salim Aljar, and basically go to the University of Greasefold, where they uh, uh, take up, um, um, I think, uh, I think electrical engineering, I, I, I could be wrong about that, or organetical engineering or something, because he wanted to be a pilot. But his father basically said when he was younger, he persuaded Ziajara not to, which I, you know, later on has some very uh, dark uh, overtones to it. Um, so what happened was Ziajara, who loves to party, who loves, he's a womanizer, basically, um, while he's living there, he lives alone. He rents a room with a woman uh, in, in uh, Bakum, Germany. And later on, goes to Hamburg and goes into the most fervent mosque in Hamburg called Al-Quds Mosque. Now, out of nowhere, this guy basically, who doesn't, you know, is not religious, basically goes and stays at this mosque, according to the FBI here, mm -hmm. um, basically just stays there and becomes radicalized. Well, that mosque was being watched by the BFB, which is the German intelligence arm, for a long time because they were known to be uh, radical uh, fundamentalists in there. Basically, you have two Syrian gunmaners who had connections with al-Qaeda, Mohammed Haydar Zamar and Mahmoud Darkanzali, who basically meet with Mohammed Atta, who goes here too, Ramsi bin al-Shib, Marwan al-Shib, and Ziad Jara meets them and supposedly gets radicalized along with them. Now, those two guys basically are helping along with their radicalization. Later on, you know, Ziad Jara goes and meets his girlfriend, Azil Sanguin, but he never lives with her. And he's never, ever really seen with any of these guys from Al-Quds, ever. There's no photographs, no nothing. But later on, they find one photograph that he was at a wedding of a person at the mosque named Saeed Bahaji. He goes to this wedding, but there's really no connection to any of these people. Well, much later on, we fast forward, he's living alone inside the United States. He comes to the United States. Let me back up a little bit. Allegedly, him, Muhammad Atta, and Mohan Ashii, and Ramzi bin Al-Sheib traveled to Afghanistan. These guys are nobodies except for Ramzi bin Al-Sheib. He's an Al-Qaeda uh, associate. But the other guys, they don't know anything. They're young men. 
And what do they do? They go to a safe house and being security screened. And they're there for like a week. And then all of a sudden meet with who? They meet the top officials of Al-Qaeda. Osama bin Laden, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, Mohammed Atef, Dr. Ayman al -Zwiri. And it's amazing. They shoot right up and they're being told about this planes operation. And they agree to be martyrs, which is surreal. You know, these are young men. Um, they, they agree to be martyrs on, on this operation. Anyway, they come back to, uh, they, go, they go to Germany. BFVs for following them. Then they come to the United States. Now, Marwan al and, and, and Mohammed Atta go to this flight school um, called Huffman Aviation. And Ziad Jar is separate from them. And he lives separately from them. He's never seen with them. And he goes to his own flight school. And then over the years, even just days before 9-11, Ziad Jar takes his muscle hijacking team, goes to New Jersey called the Days in Motel. And what does he do? Rents a room for himself and rents a room for the muscle hijackers. Now, you're probably saying at this point, something doesn't seem right here. Well, get ready because I'm about to low, lower the boom on you. September 11th comes. Now, on September 10th, he writes a letter to his girlfriend, right? Mm -hmm. And in it, he writes a long letter, but he writes the wrong address. All right. And he sends it out. Now, September 11th comes. He makes a phone call to his girlfriend. According to the FBI... They don't know whether that phone call originated in his hotel room or in the airport itself. How would they not know that? Right. That might. So he calls his girlfriend and says, I love you three times, and he hangs up. And then it's alleged that, and this is coming from eyewitness testimony in Newark, his boarding pass is ticketed. We have that, his boarding pass. Mm -hmm. He gets on the plane, but the plane is delayed for close to an hour on the runway. What I'm about to tell you now is speculation. This is a working theory me and Nelson Martins are working on. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to tell you why this is going to make sense. And it leads to maybe even a bigger Israeli plot. Is that when that plane crashed in Shanksville, there was, like I said, the phone calls, there were three hijackers. When they found that the debris was interesting, they found two business cards. One belonging to an uncle of his named Asim Al-Jara. And another one was the burnt passport of Ziad Jara. Now, this is my speculation. I don't think Ziad Jara ever got on that plane. And you're asking, well, what's your evidence? Well, the evidence is I'm thinking it's going to be the phone calls. Nobody describes Ziad Jara. Nobody ever uh, admits that there were four hijackers on a plane. They all named three. You had one guy outside the door, two guys in the cockpit. The voices, uh, the the voice cockpit recorder survived. The victim's families heard that recording, never heard the name Ziad Jara on it. The transcript is public for everyone to view. Just uh, Google Flight 93 transcript and you'll see it. And not one time is Ziad Jara's name is mentioned. Now it stops there, right? No, it keeps going because this is more speculation on my part. I think he was an Israeli mole. Now, what's my evidence for that? Well, later on, it finds out that many years later, a cousin of uh, a cousin of his is arrested in Lebanon. His name is Ali Al Jara, and he was a spy for Israel for twenty five years. He has a brother, Joseph Al Jara, who is helping him spy for Israel for ten years. He has a cousin, Asim Al Jara, who not only was a member of the Abu Nadal organization not only was working for Libyan intelligence, not work, not only working for German intelligence, but also working for Israeli intelligence. 
So this guy really was a big player in the intelligence community and with an even older terrorist organization called Abu Nadal. And basically, what I'm trying to allude at is here is this. Yes, planes were hijacked. Yes, they were real hijackers. But yes, there might have been that one mole that the CIA, the NSA couldn't get. And that Kofor Black, the CIA counterterrorism coordinator director, basically desperately wanted to infiltrate Al-Qaeda and basically couldn't. But the Israelis probably did because Ziad Jara was all the way down to the day itself, but probably didn't get on that plane and got off and basically disappeared into the middle of the night and probably has a new identity somewhere to make sure that the operations were right through down to the last second and it was successful because three of those four planes hit where they did except for Flight 93. And that's what I think is, uh, like again, take that with a grain of salt. It's speculation. It's a theory we're working on and we're trying to get more information about it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm just going to reiterate that if you don't believe in planes or hijackers, none of this, none right. of this exists. None of this exists. The key thing that you're trying to drive home here. Um, so after the attacks with the airplanes, there was an anthrax attack that took mm. place, and um, the Israeli intelligence tried to push the narrative along with the Czech Republic government that the um, the transfer of anthrax had gone from Iraqi Iraqi people to Al Qaeda, and that Al Qaeda got the anthrax and mailed it to all the recipients that got the anthrax after the September 11th attacks. Um, this turned out to not be true. The anthrax did not come from Iraq and it sort of got memory hold. And then they tried to blame it on some lone wolf people who ended up either dead or the, the trail went cold. Uh, I don't know how much you know about this. I know this is more Ryan's expertise, but what, what do you know about the anthrax attacks and the meeting in Prague that didn't actually take place with the Iraqis and um, Al Qaeda. What 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 do you think really happened there? Yeah, the, the, Ryan's fantastic work regarding the meeting in Prague was from Mohammed Atta going to uh, meeting with the Israeli intelligence about. Uh, no, I'm sorry, meeting with um, uh, intelligence there and basically trying to connect uh, these uh, these anthrax attacks with Iraq, basically, and right. that came from Israeli intelligence and that was basically made up on the spot. That intelligence never existed. He never was in Prague. And so um, that was like totally made up. There's another story, too, that is basically nationwide uh, regarded as, oh, these are, this is the real information, right? Um, because they don't want to talk about Israeli intelligence and basically shame them because they're protected, just like the Saudis. They protect their interests. Here, we're talking about one week after the attacks, um, where basically the anthrax attacks were these letters that were coming in and being sent to um, uh, Enquirer magazine, ABC, CBS, um, and the New York Post. And I think a letter actually later on went to some um, uh, business, I think it was a media arm in, in uh, it was called The Sun in Florida. And that guy probably, yeah, he died, I think. And there were two letters that went to, um, uh, uh, senators, I always forget their names. Um, uh, Tom Daschle and um, Leahy, um, Patrick Lee. I'm sorry, Patrick Lee. And these two guys basically were against, uh, they would, uh, Daschle was actually the um, the Senate majority leader, 
And um, he basically was against um, uh, an invasion of Iraq, I think. He was actually against it or something like that. And th these anthrax uh, letters went to them, of all people, you know, the two Democratic senators. Anyway, they survived. They, you know, nothing happened to them. But basically, a whole bunch of letters went out. And Robbie Martin did probably the best work on anthrax, uh, the anthrax attacks. And it was a five-hour podcast. And it's the best podcast I've heard regarding anthrax itself. Uh, Media Roots Radio, go take a look at it. It was phenomenal. And I remember interviewing him for it. And what happened was these this specific anthrax spores were tracked to one area. Now, the government basically said that this uh, anthrax came from um, Al-Qaeda. Now, later on, it was alleged that they were, through the torture of a militant named Sheikh Ibn al-Libi, who was captured in Egypt and basically tortured by the CIA and the intelligence arm called the State Security Investigation Services, or the Mahabeth. They actually tortured Sheikh Ibn al-Libi and tortured him to say the following, which actually was what they wanted him to say, that al-Qaeda was in Iraq with Baptist officials, and they were making biological and chemical weapons. And the story was linked to this story, not the one in Prague, because that one failed. This story basically said that, yes, this was the same spores that were coming out of Iraq. But guess what, Reed? It didn't come out of Iraq, because these spores were then traced to an archive called Ames, because the strain was called Ames Strain, named after Ames, Iowa, which is where the biological chemical warfare laboratories are. Well, what happened? The FBI said, destroy the archive. What? Destroy <laughs> the archive? What are you talking about? Well, they did. They destroyed the whole archive. Why? Because that's where the strains were. Well, after the archive's destroyed, they find out, oh, we'll just blame this guy, Bruce Ivins. Oh, he just so happens to work with uh, Ames, Iowa, and basically commits suicide because the FBI promotes false charges on him and pressures him to break, and he did break, and he killed himself. And that's what happened with him. But did that stop the State Department from going to the National United, uh, United Nations Security Council with Colin Powell showing you those vials and basically said this is what they were procuring, these anthrax vials? No, it didn't stop them. They lied straight up to the United Nations Security Council. Great Britain even admitted and said it's not enough for the courts, but it's enough to go to war. And that's what they did. They went to war. And later on, when they're in the middle of war and they find out that there's no anthrax there, the same officials who are basically torturing Sheikh Ben Alibi, they go back and say, why did you lie? And you know what he said, Reed? I lied so you would stop hurting me. So what did they do with this guy? He gets deported back to Egypt. They find him hanging in his cell. Yeah, and I mean, this was a huge connection to Iraq. A lot of people forget. A lot of people don't even know about the anthrax attacks or the link here that was made yeah. that was just built off of complete bullshit, and then just kind of forgotten about afterward. Like once they yeah. made the connections they wanted, they just never dug it up again. Um, yeah, the, you know, one of the most important things you talk about is the greater ramifications of nine eleven. Instead of focusing on whether a building was brought down by controlled demolition or you know how an airplane made a turn in washington dc and hit the pentagon lots of people aren't paying attention to these anomalies <clears throat> and then the foreign policy after effects that took place um 
or some that were foreshadowed beforehand in Project for a New American Century, they say we're going to need a new Pearl Harbor in order to have something like this take place. And here's your new Pearl Harbor that happens mm. and authorizes basically endless war in the Middle East. We have technically pulled out of Afghanistan, but there's still drone bombings taking place there. We're never going to actually completely leave. Um, you know, we're, there's still heavy aggression against Iran, even though we haven't actually technically gone to war with them yet. We've been at war in Syria, Libya, you know, like all over the place. It's crazy. And there's uh, no end in sight. And it all, you know, not all of it, but a lot of it stems back to this. And it was a war started over lies. And then even the war that was, you know, initially started over this, the invasion of Afghanistan was completely unjustified. We had three opportunities to get Osama bin Laden before actually invading Kabul. And we could have killed him and been done with it by Christmas of 2001. But we decided to just go full speed ahead along with all the bullshit narrative we were given. And here we are. But yeah, I like I said, when I was given my speech at Defend the Guard, the Defend the Guard rally, I didn't want to even associate it with the 9-11 truth stuff because I didn't want to discredit Defend the Guard. You know, if there's any people there who it was their first time or something, they'd be like, oh, man, like this is with that. I don't. But there is a real interesting narrative that's really searching for truth here that inspired me. I have not been on 9-11 truther and i don't even really call myself that because i don't like the term but i I've, I've not been someone who's been interested in um not unofficial narratives surrounding 9-11 for very long but it's people like you like ryan like robbie martin that have kind of opened my eyes to what's really going on so i uh, just keep up the good work adam we're actually going to go jump on jackman radio and it sounds like there's going to be a, a party over there we might have ryan we might have Jason Burmis might have quite a few people over there. So um, we're going to jump over there. Before we do, Adam, um, any last thoughts about 9-11 that you really want to get out there for people to consider? Yeah, sure. I mean, look, you know, everyone's talking about the implosion of the buildings, whether there's planes or hijackers or not, is missing the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is foreign policy guidelines, as well as the intelligence agencies collecting information to make sure operations go as successful as they are to capitulize on those foreign policy guidelines where the U.S. government and U.S. interests like Israel and Saudi Arabia benefit from the suffering of others. And that's exactly what 9-11 was basically all about, as well as destroying civil liberties inside the United States ever so slowly so you don't uh, witness or react to it in time. And by then it's too late. But look, please look at the intricacies of 9-11 and make up your own mind about what really happened on 9-11. You know, we don't have much in the way of real evidence like this few pieces of the puzzle out there, but we could actually still make pieces out and put them together and basically fictionalize what the picture might look like and um, just keep searching for the truth. Now, there's some good researchers out there. They're still out there, but um, few and far between, but we're still out there. And if you want to, you know, ever ask me a question... I'll always be accessible for anybody. All right. Everyone go follow Adam. I've got links listed in the description to his YouTube and his Twitter. Uh, he puts out lots of great information. He does live streams occasionally, and he's he's pumping out content constantly about all this yeah. stuff. I only retain like 10% of it because I'm not nearly as smart as he is. So I have to watch it 85 no. times to get it. But um, And actually, I finally met Adam in person. He, Eric Jackman, and I took a road trip last weekend down to washington dc 
Um, and we got to go to a Ron Paul Institute conference, got to meet, you know, it was the second time I met him, but got to meet Ron Paul, Dan McAdams, hang out with uh, Dave DeCamp and uh, Pat McFarlane, all those guys. It was a great time. Uh, make sure you subscribe to my Substack if you haven't already. Um, I talk about that trip that we just took. And yeah, 21 years later, guys, 9-11 is old enough to drink now. Uh, you know, so we should... <laughs> We should be taking lessons from it instead of just, you know, just just thinking that it's those awful Muslims that hate us for our freedoms. Mm -hmm. I when I read Osama bin Laden's fatwa earlier today, I guarantee you none of the reasons were that we have rampant uh, sexual uh, prostitution or, you know, uh, scantily clad women in our magazines or because we eat hot dogs and we you know allow atheism and christianity or whatever like it wasn't any of those were none of the reasons they attacked us so uh let's uh let's pay attention to people who are upset at what the united states government is doing now and i'm not saying we should cave to terrorist demands on every level but they're upset about us fucking with them they're mm. not i'm not saying we should change our own lives and change our own culture to make terrorists happy that's not the point. The point is that we're bombing them. We're invading their countries uh, and not just terrorists. Now it's, uh, you know, now we're building, uh, you know, now we have bases and we're doing military drills like right outside of Chinese borders. We did it for years right outside of Russian borders. And look at how that's working out now. Um, and also with all this intelligence agency, um, you know, build up with the Patriot Act and everything. That kind of is allowing the terrorists to change our culture. Like if there is a moment where we're letting the terrorists dictate how we are going to live our lives in our own country, it is when we pass stuff like that. And when we allow the government to monitor everything, that is proof that Osama bin Laden won. But um, yeah, Adam, thanks for coming on. Everyone follow us over to Jackman Radio. It's going to be interesting.